0: Well, our main Bible reading is from one Colossians. Colossians one, beginning at verse twenty-four, reading to chapter two, verse five, and it says this. For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. we're well, we going to have a look at that passage in a moment. A few things to mention, there'll be questions at the end of the sermon, you have a sermon outline if you wish to use it, and most importantly, let's ask God to help, because us Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your servant, Paul, who you sent into the world to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And as such, we're so grateful for him that we have your son's message handed down to us, that the mystery now has been revealed, and that we have everything revealed to us that we might become mature in Christ. Amen. Well, it's September, and we often have visitors who've recently arrived in Bradford and are looking for a church to settle at. And so a question we might ask is, what should we be looking for in a church? What makes a good church? It's also the, or uh, well, it was last week, the 11th anniversary of this church. So it might be a good opportunity to reflect upon the last 11 years and how the ministry is going. We might ask the question, is Trinity Church successful? But how do we evaluate whether a church is good or if a church is successful? Is it the size of the worship band or the quality of the worship? Or is it how many converts have been? Is it how many people attend the church? Or is it the teaching that makes a church good? Is it the programs that are put on for the children? Or is it the extent in which the Spirit is at work among congregation? If these are the measures of a successful church, maybe it doesn't look too good for Trinity. Eleven years and growth has been minimal which has caused some people to wonder, what are we doing wrong? The band is minimal, but may be appropriate for such a small congregation. And the worship might be seen as reductionist. There's no Sunday school. But just how do you measure the Spirit's work? These questions we cannot take lightly. As a church, we're part of the universal church that God bought by his blood, the Christ's body. And so we have a responsibility to succeed in the task that God has given us to do. Which means we need to know what the task is and with his help, ensure we do everything accordingly to meet his requirements, But what does that look like? Well, this morning we're in Colossians 1, 24, 2-5, and it will no doubt have some helpful things to say on this area. But before we get there, we have a peculiar statement made by Paul that doesn't quite sit right. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, that is, the church. How can Paul suggest there's something lacking in Christ's afflictions? How can Paul infer that he's filling up where Christ is lacking. In order to explore this, we first need to make sure we have dismissed the possibility that Paul is suggesting that Christ's death is in any way lacking. That is to say that Christ's redemptive suffering at the cross in some way falls short, and Paul is able to supplement what is lacking? That's not what Paul's saying. Just to ensure there's no doubt on this, let's have a look back at Colossians 1, verse 19 and 20. It says there, For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul asserts here, the peace has been made by God between himself and all things in heaven and earth. And that was achieved through the blood of the cross, wholly and completely. We could go forward and look at 2 verses 14 and 15 by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Paul is clear that redemption is solely the work of Christ, according to the Father's will. So in order to explore what this does mean, verse 24, let's go back to Isaiah 49, verse 6. It says there, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob but to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now, who's that talking to? Well, it's the suffering servant of Isaiah. God's suffering servant, who will not only redeem the people of Israel, but will then bring salvation to the ends of the earth so that Gentiles can be included in the people of God as well. Now we know that Jesus identifies himself as a suffering servant. And that what is said of the suffering servant himself, uh, servant, sorry, and what is said of the suffering servant applies to Jesus. So it might come as a bit of a surprise that when Paul talks about himself in Acts 13, verse 47, he quotes this passage. Let's read Acts 13 from verse 44 to see the context. Uh, it says this Acts thirteen, verse forty-four. The next Sabbath almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of the God, word of God, be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Paul is preaching to the Jews who are God's people, but they do not receive the gospel. And so Paul explains they'll now go to the Gentiles, who were not God's people, and preach to them, because they've been sent to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. For completeness, it's worth also going back to Acts 9 just to read Paul's commission or part of it. In Acts 9, verse 15, he says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So to put all this together, Jesus' redemptive act was intended to be sufficient not only for God's people, the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, all nations. But the means Jesus chose to take the gospel to Gentiles was Paul. So to put it crudely, if Paul hadn't set out on his ministry or had failed, then the gospel would never have gone out to the Gentiles and the full plan of God would never have happened. But Paul didn't fail. He went out, committed to his unique commission from Christ and took the gospel to the Gentiles, which was a necessary extension of Christ's work. But with this work, it brought him great suffering but Paul rejoiced in it because he was bringing the glory to Christ that his redemptive work would be effective for the Gentiles too. So the church, as intended, will be made up of new people, including both Jews and Gentiles. Now, there's more that could be said, but it's probably worth stopping there because there are some other things that it would be nice to take a bit of time over. So let's take a look at verse 28. It says this, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. There's quite a lot going on in this brief verse. So here are a few observations. First, Paul and his colleagues proclaim Jesus. Him we proclaim. And Paul's begun to use the term proclaim as a technical term that means when we read it, he's proclaiming the gospel. Something I'm sure we're already used to. But there's an intensity to this proclamation Paul isn't happy just to speak the message and then move on, feeling his work is done. It's necessary that he makes it explicit that the Gospels a warning. It needs to be listened to because rejecting it comes with consequences. But Paul and his colleagues, their roles don't stop there. It also involves teaching, and teaching everyone everything. So we have the short phrase, Te- teaching everyone with all wisdom. So often in churches, there are books of the Bible, or passages that are overlooked or skirted over, which means large parts of the biblical account and themes are not taught. If someone were to inquire after them, then maybe they'd be encouraged to go and train at theological college. What we end up then is with a two-tier Christianity. The basic level for the congregation member and the higher level for the spiritual elite. But this makes no sense. God has given us all the full revelation and it's all there for our benefit and good but we can only benefit from it if it's all taught to us all and every one of us. And then finally, there's a goal in sight at the end of verse 28. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. When Christ returns... Will all stand before Christ. At which point, those who persevere until the end, who've grown in their faith through the teaching that's been passed down from Paul, will be made complete in Christ. Now that's pertinent. Do you remember at the start we asked what makes a good church and what makes a successful church? Well, in one sense, a church can only be truly evaluated at the end. Think of it this way. If a church is renowned for its great worship, but none of its members are presented as mature before Christ at the end, then all that worship is for nothing. If people travel across the country to hear the great teaching from a particular church but none of those pilgrims are presented before Christ. Well, it was all futile. If a church converts thousands of people, but of those thousands, no one lasts more than a few years in the faith, then it means nothing. Paul's role didn't end at the conversion of men and women. That was only the beginning. He would go on, and teach, so that his hearers would continue in the faith and persevere. And that wouldn't end until the day of Christ. It's only then that any meaningful evaluation of his ministry could be made. That is when he would know if he had succeeded. And his hope was to present every man perfect in Christ, on the final day. This provides us with a few points of reflection. When I'm choosing a church, I want one that will teach the whole counsel of God so that I have everything I need to continue to the end. And when we sit back and evaluate the success of Trinity, well, we realise it is impossible because the work will only be deemed as success or failure once it's been seen whether the congregation has persevered until the end. But what this does do is it helps define what our purpose is. It isn't about being big. It's not about having the biggest worship band or the most comprehensive children's work. It's about teaching the whole counsel of God so that all God's people have everything they need as given by God so be kept until mm-hmm. the end. Let's pray. <coughs> Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your word through your many prophets but also the final revelation through your Son. We thank you that this has been passed on by your apostles, including the Apostle Paul who came to the Gentiles. We pray, Lord, that we wouldn't pay lip service to this privilege, but we would search the Scriptures for all that we need for eternal salvation. That we get to know you each day and week as we minister to one another so that we might be presented perfect in Christ on the final day. Amen. I mentioned at the start there'd be an opportunity to ask any questions or make any comments in light of the things we've been thinking about. Any thoughts? Yeah, pretty much. So let me repeat the question just for the recording. So, uh, 124, just to kind of revisit that idea of what does it mean filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions? So, yeah, so this is obviously when Jesus died, he, you know, if we go back, and we remember that Jesus comes to the Jews, he comes to his own people and that's who he's preaching to. He does come across a few Gentiles, but often he sort of moves them on, uh, maybe has a brief conversation with them, but ultimately he spends his time with Jews. And then um, when he dies on the cross, obviously, ultimately, it's the Jews who have called for him to be crucified. And so when Peter at Pentecost speaks to the crowd, which is once again a Jewish crowd, he says, what you need to repent from is killing your Messiah. And so at that point, they repent, or some of them repent at least. It's only later on um, that Peter then takes that to the Gentiles. Um, and simultaneously, Paul is commissioned by Christ, he has this vision on the Damascus Road, to continue that work to take it to the Gentiles. At which time he's told, it will bring about suffering for the sake of Christ. So how that fits in here, and it's not an easy verse, and commentators have got lots of weird and wonderful ideas, and there's not a lot of agreement here. But the suggestion is that... In as far as Christ's work is lacking, in as far as um, gospel needs to go out to the Gentiles, and only when it goes out to the Gentiles will Christ's work be complete, as it were. Um, so that's what Paul's doing. He's continuing to do that as an extension of the work of Christ so that the full extent of what he achieved at the cross is realized Um, so I mean I I kind of only said that because of the the sake of recording because you kind of already said that so that's the reason why I repeated that any other thoughts, questions or comments? Oh, Ricky. Excellent. Okay, so question, just for recording, verse 27, what is the mystery and who is the you? At the end of verse 27. So yeah, one of the reasons I kind of overlooked this is because I feel like this is probably very something very similar to what we did in Ephesians. I think it's the same theme going on here. So just to reread, well, let's see. Let me read from verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Yeah, let me stop there then. So, given what we've said is happening in verse 24 that the gospel is going out to the Gentiles and that's what Paul is doing as an extension of Christ's work. This mystery then has to do with kind of the same thing that we get in Ephesians that the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles which makes this new people this new humanity of that's made up of believers who are Jews, believers who are Gentiles, are reconciled to become one new man. So I think then, when it says, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, I think he's specifically saying, you Gentile Christians in Coloss- Colossia. um, I think. So they're kind of a the evidence or example of that mystery being fulfilled. Oh Nathan. Yeah, um, okay, so 2 verse 2, so is, is it that the mystery is slightly different that's referred to in 2 verse 2? So that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Yeah, I um, I can't remember what the commentary said. Today might be worth having a look, but I don't. Yeah, I can't. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I guess Christ's work is creating this new humanity. And so I, I guess I don't know. I don't know. I'm just going to not say something particularly helpful. Uh, let me have a look. i me get that to you. Should we leave it there? Unless anyone's desperate. Nope. Okay. We're going to uh, sing our next song before a moment's reflection, which is My Hope Is Built.